0: Uh, so this morning we kick off our sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we're going to be uh, in this uh, book for about 12 weeks as we uh, as we ask some questions. Uh, we, re, uh, we dig into uh, some of the more difficult questions in life. Uh, so you see there it says life is Hebel. Uh, sometimes that is uh, spelled with a V. It's a transliteration of the Hebrew word which means uh, vapor or a Something that that's here and gone in an instant. If you've ever read uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, you know it starts out with life is vain. It's 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 meaningless. It's it's hopeless. Uh, and is that the case? So we're gonna we're gonna dive into Ecclesiastes and ask some pretty challenging questions, or look at the questions that Ecclesiastes challenges us with. Uh, In 1961, there was a book that was published by an author whose name was N.W., the initials N.W. Clerk, and it was a book that dealt with grief. It was a book that dealt with despair. It was a a book that dealt with misery. And it did so from a Christian perspective in that the author uh, was a Christian, uh, but asked some very difficult questions that made Christians, very uneasy. I want to share some of the quotes with you out of that book to, to help start off this morning, because I think it will help us understand uh, the significance of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, so a handful of quotes here. The author says, "Part of every misery is, so to speak, the misery shadow or reflection." And he explains this the fact that you don't merely suffer, but you have to keep on thinking about the fact that you suffer. And not li- only live each day, uh, endless day in grief, but live each day thinking about living each day in grief. We were promised sufferings, and I was talking from a specifically Christian perspective. They're part of the program. Uh, we're even told, Blessed are those that mourn. I accept it. I've got nothing I haven't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others, and in reality, not in imagination. Third quote, he says this, God has not been trying to experiment and experiment with my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption... If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. then one more. Not that I am, I think, uh, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about Him. The conclusion I dread is not so there is not a God after all, but so this is what God is really like, deceive yourself no longer. Those are some difficult statements. Those are some statements and some questions uh, that make us uncomfortable. I'll speak for myself. They make me uncomfortable. They don't sound like they're they're very uh, mature about our faith in Jesus. And they don't sound like they, they've experienced the hope that is the gospel. And that is in fact why the author who wrote this book, wrote it under uh, an assumed name. That was not his name. He was actually a world-renowned Christian author, but he was fearful of the backlash he would receive from the Christian community, his brothers and sisters in Christ, who thought that he was suffering because his faith wasn't deep enough. And so, it wasn't until after he died uh, that the work that he penned, A Grief Observed, was actually published under his name, C.S. Lewis, as an author with whom probably almost all of us are familiar. One of the best literary minds of the 20th century, and a devout believer in Jesus, and yet a person who wrestled with much of the ambiguity and the unanswered questions of this life. And he had he had come to a deeper understanding that life is it is Hebel it is it is but a breath that is here today and then gone. It seems intense in the moment as the picture behind me displays, and yet, blink or wait two or three seconds, and it will all be a mist that has completely disappeared. Why study Ecclesiastes? Why study Ecclesiastes now at Green Tree Community Church? Uh, There are a couple of reasons for that. Why now? I'm going to start with that. Why now is because I've wanted to preach Ecclesiastes, but I've never felt that I've been prepared to preach Ecclesiastes. I always felt that I was too young and I didn't have enough life experience to actually appreciate everything that the scripture was offering. But now I'm older. Uh, I can even go so far as to say I'm old, I'm 60 years old. I asked the second grader this morning what they thought of 60 years old, and their eyes got real big and real wide, and I said, well, don't worry, I think the same thing about that. But why Ecclesiastes? Well, I, I think an honest look at Scripture would say that the vast majority of Scripture is given to us in the context of God's glory and God's power. and and God's plan of salvation and his grace and his mercy and his compassion to us. And and rightly so, we should rejoice in that. We should be excited about that. There should be joy in the Christian community. If there isn't joy in the Christian community, we've missed the fundamental message of the good news of the gospel. But what Ecclesiastes does is, is not ignore the gospel as if it weren't true. Ecclesiastes comes at the same question, is there a God and does he care about me, and, and does life matter? It comes at it from the opposite side of the question, and it really asks the question, well, what's life without God? If you choose not to believe in God, if you choose not to put your trust in him, then, then so speak, what are you left with? Is there anything that really will bring meaning to life? And so I I like the fact that, that it turns the argument around a bit because that tends to make me think a little bit harder and pay a little bit careful attention. Ecclesiastes, as it were, really asks the positive question from the negative side of the coin. And the reason I think this is also important for us at Green Tree Community Church now is because the types of questions that Ecclesiastes wrestles with are the type of questions that we wrestle with today. The meaning of life. Why, why do good things happen To uh, to, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is one person's life cut short and one person's life extended? Why why does one person have wealth and another person is poor and oppressed? These are questions that are right smack dab in front of us today. And if we're going to be a witness for Jesus, our answer simply can't be, well, the Bible says that it all works out in the end. (laughs) If I were not a believer in Jesus and that was the answer you gave me, I'm pretty sure I would walk away from the conversation. Because I would feel that there was a sense of disingenuous on your part that you hadn't really thought about it enough. You hadn't, really, you hadn't really wrestled with the hard questions enough to compel me to consider the claims of Christ. So I think it's not just for our own spiritual well-being, but I believe it will help us be a witness for Jesus. Let me pray for us and we're going to jump in. Father, we thank you for all of Scripture. Uh, and this morning as we embark on this journey, I thank you for Ecclesiastes. I thank you for the difficult and challenging questions that we find there. And I thank you for the disturbing comments that are made because they are true to the extent that they cause us to think about what life is like if we choose to make mankind and ourselves the center of the universe, a life void of relationship with you. So Lord, we we need great wisdom from your Holy Spirit to understand these texts. Uh, Father, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us in them Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be glorified in our lives. Uh, We submit to your word. It has the final uh, rule and authority in our lives. And so we come longing to understand it better, that we may trust you more deeply. Father, we don't come here to hear my words. They're of no more consequence than others. In fact, they're probably of less consequence than others. Lord Jesus, we come to be taught by you, by your spirit, by your word. And it is that for which we pray. Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me be a hindrance to your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin uh, the series, uh, we're going to do an overview this morning because the preacher, and that's what he calls himself, and we'll get to that a little bit more next week, uh, but the preacher... Calls us to an honest reflection on life in a world that is broken with sin and death, while helping us understand we can trust God in all things. Uh, so, for those of you who have studied uh, Ecclesiastes, read through it once or twice, and it's frustrated you, uh, I understand that. I get that. I've studied more uh, in the last couple months of preparing for this series, and I've studied since I was in seminary. And I was in seminary in the late '80s and early '90s, so that's saying something. This is; these are deep waters. In which we're going to swim, and yet it's absolutely, uh, the end result is absolutely crucial because we see God's faithfulness when it's all said and done. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to give you an overview uh, by asking the question and trying to answer it through the words of Ecclesiastes, why study the book of Ecclesiastes? And I'm going to give you seven reasons why we're going to study. And some of you just immediately looked at your watches and said, "Uh-oh, we're in big trouble." He's got seven reasons we're going to be here till one o'clock this afternoon. Well, we're not because we have a visitor lunch, uh, but also because I'm just going to touch on these. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on any one of them, but I think they're all very important. And I'll give you Bible. I'll give you Ecclesiastes verses as we uh, as we go through. So you may just want to watch the screen this. Morning. Morning instead of trying to flip through your Bible. So, the first reason we study Ecclesiastes life is full of ambiguities, complexities, and contradictions. They're, they're just some things that don't make sense. Here's one of them in Ecclesiastes 7. In my vain life, I have seen everything. And then he speaks to one thing in particular he's seen. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So the author of Hebrews says, I've, I've seen really good people who, you know, they, they contribute to society. They're trying to make the world a better place to live. They're they're investing themselves and their resources in in doing good things, and they die too early. And their full impact is never felt. And then I've seen people who are rotten to the core. I've seen people who who, who, their lives are scandalous. They hurt other people. They they take from other people. They do harm to society. And they seem to live all the way through and get off scot-free, and nothing bad ever happens to them. How can that be? That's a really good question. Secondly, in, in chapter eight, he says this, this is a van- there's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this is that this also is vanity. So he's asking the question, what about these righteous people that bad things happen to? Them? Why do bad things happen to quote unquote, good people? Folks are out there. They're they're trying hard. They're be having a positive influence. And boy, everything just seems to go wrong for him. How can that possibly be fair? While this guy over here who's living for himself and he cheats and he steals to get ahead and he steps on everybody around him and he you know he's gone through four marriages and he, his kids hate him. And but boy, oh boy, it seems like everything he touches turns to gold. How can that possibly be fair? Life is full of ambiguities, complexities, and contradictions. You ever ask the what if questions when it comes to people who have died too early? Ever thought about it? I've asked myself, what what if Dr. King hadn't died? What if Dr. King you know passed away in 2010 at the ripe old age of uh, of around 90 and he had had another 40 years of impact in our in our culture what if abraham lincoln had not been assassinated what if he had more years to do more work on behalf uh, of a nation that was just beginning to come back together after the civil war if you don't recognize a gentleman in the middle he was uh, his name is jim elliot and he was a missionary to the alka indians a people group that had never heard the gospel and they they got in uh, canoes and went to their village, and he got out of his canoe with a couple other friends, stepped onto the beach, and he was instantly murdered by, by the people of that tribe. What if he had not lost his life? What, what would he have done not only for that particular people group, but for world missions? Some things just don't seem to make sense. There are, there are complexities that can't seem to be answered. If you've ever sat with a friend who's lost a loved one in an untimely way, if you've ever been with a person who has done everything right, followed all the rules, and their business is a complete and utter disaster. You talk to a friend who says, I got home and my spouse just told me that they're leaving and they don't want to have anything to do with me, and I thought we had a pretty good relationship. There just are simply complexities in this world that do not allow for simple answers. Secondly, we study Ecclesiastes because we're tempted to live simply for the here and now and for temporary wealth. The, The preacher, who is also, by the way, the a king in Jerusalem, because the next couple verses we're going to read, the preacher tells you all the wealth he amassed, and I don't want you to think this is a typical pastor salary. Okay, he was also the the king of the entire nation, so he had a few more resources at his disposal. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. "'But behold, this was also vanity. "'I made great works, built houses, planted vineyards, "'made gardens, parks, and planted fruit trees, "'made pools, bought male and female slaves. "'I had great herds and flocks, "'more than any who had come before me in Jerusalem.' I gathered gold and silver and treasures of kings. I got singers and many concubines. I became great and surpassed all who had come before me in Jerusalem. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I experienced in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, I'm going to go down a side road for just a second. As you read Ecclesiastes, and by the way, I'm going to go down a secondary side road. Uh, A friend gave me this book, Jeannie Greenwood gave me this book, and it's simply the book of Ecclesiastes. So, if you open it up, you'll see uh, on this side of the page, it's just the scripture. It's not like it's a study Bible, it's just scripture. But you got a blank page on this side, so you can take notes. Uh, So, I'd encourage you, this is Crossway Books. She told me you could go on Amazon and get one of these. It's called a scripture journal. So, you may want to kind of take notes uh, Uh, as you go. But the reason I I bring this up is whenever you see that phrase under the sun in Ecclesiastes, underline it or highlight it, mark it somehow, because it has a very specific meaning. And we'll talk about this more and more throughout the next 12 weeks. When the author of of Ecclesiastes says under the sun, he's talking about the world as we know it, absent God. So what he's saying is, if I'm going to live without God, where does that lead me? And so he looks at everything under the sun, in other words, without bringing God into the equation. And he says, here, I've gotten everything. And he had the means to get everything. This, the, in our today's standards, he would be a billionaire. There's nothing he couldn't get if he wanted it. And he gets to the end of it and says, it's a waste of time to live for temporary wealth. Jesus says exactly the same thing in Matthew's gospel. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We live in a world that says if you just get the next thing, you'll be happy. Look at the world that says, you know, you've got, a, you've got a wonderful wine cellar, but if you get a few more bottles of wine that are this vintage, you'll be just perfect. You know, you drive a wonderful car, but if you drove this car, it would just be that much better. You live in this kind of house, but maybe you ought to live in that kind of house. And everything seems to be built on temporary wealth equals happiness, equals the meaning of life. And we'd be very tempted to believe that that's where we should spend our energy and our time. Thirdly, we should study Ecclesiastes because the opposite is also true. We can be tempted to live for pleasure and for excitement. We can also be tempted to despair. In chapter 1, the author writes, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanities of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's that, that puff of smoke, a bell. What does a man gain, or a woman for that matter, anybody? What does a person gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. There is a prophetic statement right there about social media. The eye is not filled with seeing and the ear is not filled with hearing. Uh, a couple of friends of mine asked some college students recently to talk about social media and about do you, do you keep your phone with you all the time? Do you keep it on all the time? Do you turn it off? Do you leave it on? And, and I think their answers were pretty similar to the rest of us. We can't put it down by and large. We, we can't set it aside. We, we are long. We've seen something, but now we need to see the next thing. We, you know, we, see, we saw that news clip about that situation, but now there's a new news clip we have seen. I have one friend who said something, but there's another friend who's going to say something, and I've heard this message, but now I can hear it a different way, and on and on and on it goes. We're never satisfied. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun? Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new, it is already in the ages before us. Which leads us finally to verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. We could be tempted to great despair. We could be tempted if we look at the world around us void of God and come to the conclusion that it doesn't make any sense and it isn't worth living and we can simply say, why bother? I have friends and I've had friends in in my past who have struggled uh, with clinical depression. And it's not that they don't want to live. It's not that that they are despairing of life. And, And so, and I've had a couple of friends in my experience who have taken their lives. It's not that they're despairing of life it's that they're despairing of the pain that they can't be rid of in this life. And it seems therefore to be the only logical conclusion to end the pain. That, that's a place of despair. But I would argue that you and I can tend to despair as well. We can tend to look at the circumstances in our life and some of these ambiguities and complexities, and we can say, you know what, why bother? So, we ought to study the book of Ecclesiastes. Fourthly, we study the book of Ecclesiastes because life is full of questions that don't have easy answers or fit in our assumptions. So, let's talk first about questions that don't have easy answers. Verse chapter four, the first three verses again, I saw all the oppression oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. And that, that what that really means is nobody in power to really help make a change. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to confront them. And I thought the dead who already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who will have not yet been and who has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. The, the author looks at the social upheaval of his day. So, if we think that, that, that bigotry and racism and oppression are, are unique to our setting, far from it. This has been a problem that has plagued our planet almost since day one. And the author looks at this and he says, there's something terribly wrong with people having all the power to, to make the good changes and to help the oppressed when they don't do it. And the oppressed have, have nowhere to go. Have you ever found yourself thinking, when you look at something that somebody does in government, somewhere, if I was in charge, things would be different? Tell the truth. Have you ever had that thought? I have had that thought. Nobody else. I'm the only one. Really? Okay. A couple of people are going like this. They don't really. They don't. Come on. Be brave about it. i be a bold sinner. If you're going to sin, sin big. Right? I've had that thought. If I were in charge, things would be so much better. Go ask my staff if that's true. I think we should find out that sometimes maybe yes, but a lot of times, you know, maybe not so much. There, there are questions that don't have easy answers. This is something we've been wrestling with and we, we've made no progress on it over thousands of years. But we also have some assumptions that, that actually have a negative impact on the way we live. And I'm going to go to the Gospels for just a second. Jesus and his 12 buddies are walking down the road one day, They come across a guy who's blind. They pass by, they saw a man who had been blind from birth. Now that's important. In other words, he he didn't have a disease that took his sight or he didn't have an accident where he lost his sight. He was born blind. And the disciples are now going to share with us their theological understanding of this situation. Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Here's their theological assumption that when when you do something bad against God, he's going to get you. So either this man, God looked into into, into this man's life and saw that he was going to be no good down the road, and so he made him be born blind. Or his parents did something really bad, so God got back at his parents by making their son born blind. Now, we would never vocalize that. You you would probably never, in a polite conversation with other believers, say, look at that person's troubles. And, you know, I, I think God got them for what they were doing wrong. But we, we think that in our hearts. We believe that in our hearts, at least my generation has. Why do you think we stayed away from, from the AIDS clinics in the early 80s? Why do you think we didn't reach out to people who were dying a horrible death? Because we thought they were getting what they deserved. That's the truth. We don't want to say it and play company, but that's the truth. That's the evil that's inside our hearts. Those are the theological assumptions that we have. But when you apply it to others, it's one thing when you apply it to yourself and you say, God's out to get me, that really messes with your relationship with God. It can destroy your relationship with God. That's why we study Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes doesn't let these assumptions lie unchallenged nor does it shirk away from the questions that are not easy to answer. Fifthly, we study Ecclesiastes because an honest self-evaluation is part of the pathway to knowing God. In chapter two, a great question is asked, what does a person get from all the toil and striving of heart with which they toil beneath the sun? There's that line again, under the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Have you ever poured yourself into your job? And I know a lot of you and what you do. And, and I don't know very many of you that don't pour yourself into your job. You ever, you, you care so much and you work so hard. You're not just working for a paycheck. You're not just punching a time clock. You're trying to make a difference. And then you you find out that, that somebody undercut you and it's not working out. You find out that other people don't care and they've quit on you. And then what happens? You go home and you go, well, I'm just going to go to sleep and forget all of it. And then what happens? You can't sleep and you're up all night worrying about this. That's the vexation that we feel when we, when we, we're in a situation where we think, you know what, this just is not going the way it's supposed to go. But what the author of of Ecclesiastes is saying, well, let's use that to look in the mirror. Maybe my, maybe my work has become my idol. Maybe I think that actually what I do under the sun, void of God's Work in my life is what's really most important, and maybe I've gotten things out of whack. Ecclesiastes is going to make us do some hard self-evaluation. Sixthly, the reason we study Ecclesiastes is because, truth be told, we want to play God, but we're not God. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. And let not your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Have you ever thought about the, uh, uh, the foxhole prayer? And I realize that probably the vast majority of people in this room have never been in a foxhole in combat, but, but you, you understand the metaphor where you bargain with God. And you say to God, you know, Lord, if you'll do this and you'll just, you know, get me out of this jam or you'll help me with, with, with these finances or, or help me solve this problem or help me pass this algebra test for which I have, have never cracked a book or studied. If you do that, then I will do X, Y, or Z. And we make this promise. But really what we're saying is, God, let me make you in my own image. What we're really saying is, God, you're here to serve me, and I'm only going to be in a relationship with you. I'm only going to be pleased with you if you work it out the way I want it worked out. We don't like to say it. We don't like to even acknowledge it. But truth be told, every human being walking around on the planet wants to be their own God. We want to control our own destiny. And when we pray, we're tempted to want to tell God what he should do in order to gain our affections. We study Ecclesiastes because God is not interested in being our cosmic ATM, nor our defense lawyer, nor the one who gives us the answers for the test for which we have not studied. God wants to challenge our thinking that we have the understanding, the depth of knowledge or the experience to actually think of ourselves in the same breath that we think of our God. Which leads us to the seventh, probably the most important reason why we study Ecclesiastes is because we need God. Chapter three, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people's, so that people fear before him. A couple things here that I think are important. The first is that the author of Ecclesiastes is reminding us that this is an eternal question. It's not a temporal question. Your relationship with God is not about the here and now. That's part of it. It's, it it, it's, it, it, it's not absent, but it's only a small, small portion of your relationship with God. Your relationship with God, according to God, is intended to be eternal. It's intended to, to, to go on after you die in a new life, in a, in a place that we, we call paradise, in a place called heaven. And the grace of Jesus was given so that we could have that experience. The author of Ecclesiastes is helping us look forward and saying, there, there's a better perspective here that needs to be gained In our understanding of God, God, what God is doing is eternal. So I want to attach myself to that. (laughs) I I want to be part of that. And what's cool about that is that God has the power so that it's going to work. Because see, nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken away away from it. Therefore, I should fear, I should worship God. I should be in a relationship with God, i.e., I need God. These are the reasons why we're beginning this journey this morning. If I were going to, let me give you a a quote before I put it in my own words. Zach Eswine is pastor uh, at Riverside Church. So one of the churches that we planted uh, over in Webster. And I would encourage you uh, occasionally go over to Webster and uh, sit under Zach's teaching. He is one of the smartest people I have ever met in my life. And one of the most gifted preachers I've ever, I've ever sat under as well. And Zach wrote a book called Recovering Eden, which is a book about Ecclesiastes, And that would also be a good resource for you, buy that book and read that. But he sums it up by saying this, the aim of the preacher's message is that we who listen will come to believe in God and to recover our purpose with his uh, gift and to see that our whole purpose as human beings is a God-centered relationship toward all things the preacher hopes to persuade us to recognize that God is the one to whom we belong and in whom we must place our trust. Or to put it in Tom Rick's terms, we have a tendency to oversimplify life. We have a tendency to want everything, including God, wrapped up in a nice, neat package. But much like attending the funeral of one who has died too early in life, And having to wrestle with that pain and those questions that go unanswered this side of heaven, this existence does not us allow to ignore the cold hard facts. Life can seem cruel and unfair. It would seem to me that you have a couple of choices uh, that you can can approach those kinds of questions with. You can retreat into self-indulgence, escapism, or fatalistic thinking, but Ecclesiastes says not, not so quick, it isn't that simple. But the other temptation I think that we have, especially folks who call ourselves believers in Jesus, we tend to want to bury our heads in the sand of the right Bible verse fixes everything. Now, I believe that the Bible does fix everything. I believe that that what God has given us in his word and through the person of Jesus Christ is the solution. But, it, but it, life is not just a, that simple. There is more to it. It is more complex, and it is more challenging. So the better approach, I believe the book of Ecclesiastes says, is to come on a journey. Let's consider what life without God might be like, and let's see where that takes us. Because in the end, where we're going to go is we're going to enter into a world that is broken by sin and by death. And yet, at the end of the journey, what we're going to see is that God is faithful, and we can trust in Him. Let's pray together. Father, these are uh, deep waters. I think of some of the complexities of life. Uh, I think I'd rather uh, go watch the Chiefs football game this afternoon. And yet, Lord, you call us to a relationship with you that is life-giving. Lord, you don't promise nor do you in reality answer all of the questions that we have this side of heaven. And that tends to make us uneasy. And so, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to dig in to this part of your scripture in order to see your glory, in order to see that life without you truly is a hebel. It is a vapor. It is meaningless. But also, Lord, show us that with you, all things find their meaning. And we pray that you would grow our trust in you through this study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.